Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Friday evening where we have the wonderful opportunity to reflect into the gospel for Sunday. And this Sunday, this first Sunday in the Christmas season, we are privileged to be able to reflect upon uh, the Holy Family because this Sunday is the great solemnity of the Holy Family. And, And why this great solemnity? Uh, this solemnity that finds itself situated in the heart of the Christmas season. Well, let us always remember that Christmas itself is not just about the birth of Jesus, but also about the ways in which Joseph and Mary cooperated with God's messengers to bring about the birth of Jesus. Earlier this week, we were looking at this closely because of a reflection into the angels. And as we noted, (laughs) angels are everywhere. And specifically in the narratives with Joseph and Mary. So it is right that we reflect this Sunday into the Holy Family. Um, Simply put, we cannot have the story of Jesus without the earthly family from which he came, huh? And so it is. The church, in her wisdom, sets aside the first Sunday in Christmas for the Holy Family. Now, Before we get into our gospel that comes to us from Luke, I thought it would be important to reflect upon maybe a little bit about uh, the nature of God and its relevance to Christmas, especially on this great feast day. We must remember that God draws close to us so that we might see clearly and know that God is love. Huh? What does 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16 remind us? That God is love. In eternity, this is his deepest identity. Before he created anything to love, he was love, huh? And love is an act that requires both a subject and an object, a lover and a beloved. God is that pure act of love. We could say, because of the revelation of Christmas, we know that love as the blessed Trinity. huh? Love given, love received, love shared. St. John Paul II uh, summarizes it beautifully when he says, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude, but a family, since he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of family, which is love. And as uh, Dr. Scott Hahn notes, uh, looking into his work, Joy to the World, that work we were drawing from earlier this week, you know, he says this, this may appear to be quite a leap to go from the manger to the Trinity, but it's not. Why? <laughs> well, if you think about it, I think we got into this a, a few weeks ago. If you were to go to Luke one uh, thirty-five, what do we read? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. You know, John Paul II there says, you know, the glory of the Trinity in the Incarnation on Christmas Day becomes present in time and space and finds its manifestation concretely in Jesus, His Incarnation, and His, and his History. Okay, so in Luke one thirty-five, we have a manifestation of the Trinity. John Paul II explains it this way, The angel's words are like a short creed, which sheds light on the identity of Christ in relation to the other persons of the Trinity. Christ is the Son of the Most High God, the Great One, the Holy One, the King, the Eternal One, whose conception in the flesh takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit. Huh? So Luke one thirty five, which again, this is that angelic salutation of which we've been talking about a great deal recently, is in that Annunciation narrative. And in that narrative, we have a, a nod to the Trinity. And so in that single line from Luke one thirty five, uh, we encounter God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nine months later, at Christmas, God manifests himself to the whole world in a deeply personal way. And as Scott Hahn notes, in a tri-personal way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it is no wonder, right? It is no wonder that Christmas is tied to the stuff of the family. I love that quote from John Paul II. It's one of my favorites. You know, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude but a family because he is family, right? He has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of family which is love. So it is right that as that love given, love received, love shared manifests itself in the incarnation this Christmas day, we are talking about this great solemnity of the Holy Family. Now, with that, let us go into our gospel here. This Sunday's gospel comes to us from Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. I will go ahead and read uh, these sets of verses touch upon some key points, and then reflect uh, more in depth on why these verses are tied to the Holy Family. Okay, Luke 2, verse 41, as follows. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the same which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Naz Nazareth and was obedient to them and 
and his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Mm. Amen. Okay, so what can we say about these sets of verses here? Well, to verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. It's to remember, as most commentaries note, that you know, Jewish males were expected to travel to Jerusalem for three feasts each year, huh? Passover, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booze. What's important to note here is that uh, clearly we see Joseph and Mary faithful to the Jewish laws and Jewish customs, taking their son uh, faithfully to Jerusalem as any faithful Jewish family would have. Verse 42, And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. I want to offer up a reminder here of the importance of the meaning of Jerusalem, because it's quite significant. Uh, remember what the word itself means. Jerusalem. This has us going back to the narrative with Abraham, right? When Abraham takes his son Isaac up the mountain, and there he is, set to offer up his son as a holocaust to God, in obedience to God. And the angel of the Lord intervenes, and he says, I will provide the lamb. Now, he's in the city of Salem. In that verse, I will provide the lamb, you have a bit of a key that unlocks the meaning of Jerusalem, because the Hebrew word for provide is Jeru, okay? In that moment, in the narrative with Abraham, it is no longer the city of Salem, but now Jerusalem, the city of peace, right? Salem means peace. So the city of peace where God will provide the lamb, right? And certainly in that narrative, he provides the lamb. It's a ram. His horns get stuck in the thickets, right? And he provides the lamb, but it is a foreshadowing in anticipation, of course, of the lamb of God who will go up a mountain carrying wood on his back like that of Isaac to be the Holocaust, the one and final Holocaust and offering to God. Um, so the boy Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, 20 years later, he will be that lamb, 1,800 years roughly later after Abraham. Okay, we continue to read here in verse 43 or verse 44. But supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Again, that's an important phrase. They returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Historically, they're returning to Jerusalem. But if we are going to find our Lord, we must seek him in the mystery of Jerusalem, in the mystery of the cross, huh? Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Okay, so after three days, a time certainly of great anxiety for Mary and Joseph, you know, thinking Jesus was with their caravan of Galilean pilgrims, they left the city without him. And it's interesting to note, historically speaking, 
you know, in these large caravans, what would happen is uh, the younger children would trail in the back and they would all play with each other. So, you know, some are critical of, you know, how could Mary possibly lose Jesus? It's a pretty extraordinary thing to think about, actually. You know, Joseph and Mary lose God. How do you lose God? Well, humanly speaking, as a child, they just think he's in the back caravan playing with the children. Well, certainly we know that not to be the case because they returned to the temple area three days later and they find him. How about this listening and asking? Right, something we've talked about before. It's uh, customary for Jewish religious instruction to pose questions and wrestle with them in light of Scripture. You know, we have talked a great deal about the importance of asking questions. Our Lord responds to questions with questions. He's asked over 300 questions, and He responds to all of those questions minus three times with a question. He is simply being Rabboni, master teacher, getting the person who's asking the question to think more critically about what they're asking. And I think we can learn from this. If we want to teach like Jesus teaches, then we have to ask questions to get our audience thinking more critically about what they are saying. And out from that, the truth rises to the surface. It strikes me that in this narrative, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And certainly, I'm, I'm sure, the way in which he inquired, the way in which even at the young age of 12, he was able to take uh, the matters that they were discussing and put them in the context and light of Scripture. A wonderful reflection. You know, if you ever have the time, it would be a, a great meditation to really reflect with these verses because you can begin to appreciate the dynamism of this kind of pedagogy that I'm talking about, this kind of way of teaching, if you will, and asking questions so as to get to the heart of someone else's question. All very important and always in light of, of sacred scripture. Okay, so we move on. Uh, verse 48, and when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying which he spoke to them. Now, did you not know? Jesus is not rebuking Mary and Joseph here as, as though they had done something wrong but rather he's instructing them on how their parental must always be subordinate to the will of his divine father. His parents do have an important role to play in that mission. And this is what's being highlighted. And certainly this is indicated in the subsequent context where Jesus submits himself to their leadership and honors them with that faithful obedience in verse 51, as we read, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was obedient to them, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. In verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, how about these last two verses? <laughs> you know, why does God choose to be born of an earthly mother 
and father and spend 30 of his 33 years living in an ordinary human family? Well, in part, we can say to reveal God's plan to make all people live as one holy family in his church. We must remember that the church is the family of God, the household of God. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3. I was reflecting upon the question that, that I just asked and getting into Benedict XVI, and I wanted to read Benedict XVI here because he has some beautiful words that really gets to the heart of the question. You know, why does God choose to be born of an earthly mother and father and spend 30 of his 33 years living in an ordinary human family? He says this, this is Benedict XVI, Jesus willed to be born and to grow up in a human family. He had the Virgin Mary as his mother and Joseph who acted as his father. They raised and educated him with immense love. Jesus' family truly deserves the title holy, for it was fully engaged in the desire to do the will of God, incarnate in the adorable presence of Jesus. On the one hand, it was a family like all others, and as such, it is a model of collaboration, sacrifice, and entrustment to divine providence, hard work, and solidarity in short of all those values that the family safeguards and promotes, making an important contribution to forming the fabric of every society. Benedict goes on. At the same time, however, the family of Nazareth was unique, different from all other families because of its singular vocation linked to the mission of the Son of God. With precisely this uniqueness, it points out to every family and in the first place to Christian families, God's horizon, the sweet and demanding primacy of his will, the prospect of heaven to which we are all destined. I, I love that last sentence. The sweet and demanding primacy of his will, the prospect of heaven to which we are all destined. I mean, what a profound gift from God. A gift we can say, my friends, that acts as a kind of assurance for all of us who might struggle with the mundane tasks that from time to time feel uh, that they are absent of any redemptive quality, we have to ask the question, has not God sanctified these moments? Has not God set aside for a holy purpose these moments by revealing to us that holiness abides in the ordinary events of the daily rhythm and tenor of life? I mean, it is a fascinating thing to think about how the creator of the universe humbles himself to not only be born of a woman, but also, as we heard in today's gospel, be obedient to Joseph and Mary for more than 90% of his life. Let's put this in perspective, okay? 30 of 33 years. This is more than 90% of his life. Think about this. What do we spend most of our time with? Probably that which we hold most dear, whether it is a thing or a person, hopefully a person. Whatever you spend mo the most time with is a testament in of itself to the value of what or who you are spending time with. Maybe it's a parent, a sibling, a friend, maybe a sport. Whatever you spend your time with, this is your lasting testament, okay? This is your lasting witness. We can say a lot of things about the Christian faith. 
but it is the way in which we are present to one another that really becomes our lasting testament. If all we are concerned with are the words we say, the words we share, and we are not actually present to those around us, ultimately we will fail because what people remember is who you spend time with. How did you love? Why am I talking about this? Well, think about it. Our Lord spent 90% of his time with Joseph and Mary. You can be assured, you can be assured that the God of history who became incarnate on Christmas Day is not going to be offended, offended if you turn to Joseph and Mary. Just as our Lord saw them as mediators, so should we, right? So we can speculate into many things about the Holy Family. But what is important is this. What little we know very well might be the most important thing to know. What do I mean? Well, let us turn to Pope Paul VI, because I think he has some very important words. He was teaching on the Holy Family while in the town of Nazareth, and he offers up a very significant reflection with regards to this quiet family, this most sacred family of Nazareth. He says this, First, we learn from its silence. If only we could once again appreciate its great value. We need this wonderful state of mind beset as we are by the cacophony of strident protests and conflicting claims so characteristic of these turbulent times. The silence of Nazareth should teach us how to meditate in peace and quiet, to reflect on the deeply spiritual, and to be open to the voice of God's inner wisdom and the counsel of His true teachers. Nazareth can teach us the value of study and preparation, of meditation, of a well-ordered personal spiritual life, and of silent prayer that is known only to God. Okay, so what do these words from Pope Paul VI teach us? They remind the human family that silence is critical if we are going to sustain that interior attitude of faith, which opens us up to, to God and being a part of every aspect of our life. I mean, if we are going to hear God, we need silence. This is an existential necessity. huh? Uh, what do I mean to say here? Well, let's think about it. Next time you go into a car and you start to pray, uh, do you turn on the radio or off the radio? <laughs> when you're reflecting about something, do you turn down the volume setting or up the volume setting? I think all of us have the same answer because existentially, uh, we cannot think, we cannot pray when there's a bunch of noise. And so what Pope Paul VI wants us to see is the importance of silence here and why we need silence to be the best version of who God is calling us to be. I mean, it is Satan who wants to turn up the volume. He wants more chaos. He wants more disorder. He wants noise because the more noise, the less silence. And so this is the challenge that is before us, right? Remember what Pope Francis tells us? that challenges are there to overcome, that challenges are before us as opportunities to grow. 
Remember what the word challenge means from the Latin provocatio, to call forth, to call out? We have a great challenge today in the year 2014. There is a lot of noise. There is a lot of chatter, both external and, and maybe more so internal. Sometimes the interior chatter is much louder than, than what is heard from the outside. So, again, the Holy Family teaches us about the importance of entering into this silence so as to hear, so as to listen. Remember what the word obedience means. Luke 2.51, uh, we have the word obedience, the word obedience in the Latin obadire, to listen. Okay, this is very important. If we are going to obediently respond to God, then we must be silent because we're not going to, to be able to hear. Obedience is a very important virtue, really, because obedience um, highlights the Old Testament vision of faith. Remember, we don't see faith very often in the Old Testament, but faithfulness through emunah. Emunah is about faithfulness, firm response, responsive listening. In Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26, Paul is translating the Old Testament vision of faithfulness. It is in Romans 1, 5, and 16, 26 that we read of the obedience of faith, which is better translated the obedience that springs from faith or the obedience that is faith. If we are going to respond to God in faith, we need to listen. We need to listen. Remember what the word prayer means. The word prayer means to ask. Well, are we listening to God's answer or do we selectively listen? <laughs> I think there's a tendency that we might have to selectively listen. Okay, so obedience is a very important thing here. Um, and I'm reminded of the great Christological hymn in Philippians 2, from Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, where we read of Christ's obedience unto death, death on a cross. In that hymn, we have a profound insight into the life of the Trinity, into that aforementioned familial life in the Trinity. And that is the virtue which was practiced for over 30 years in the Holy Family. He went home and he was obedient. And in that obedience, he grew in wisdom and stature. It is no wonder we speak of the Holy Family, my dear friends, because if you speak of holiness, you speak of sacrifice. And when you speak of sacrifice, you have to look to the cross. Remember what the word sacrifice means, sacrum fitse, to make holy. Oh, we're, we're translating a lot of words as we wrap up our program tonight. And we do so, so as to gain insight into the ways in which we are called to see how the holy family is, uh, in fact, that holy. For 30 years, the Son of God in His humanity was working on his human sacrifice, a sacrifice that was consummated in the cross. Uh, and it is worth noting that, again, in those 30 years, he sanctifies all of our acts, all of those acts that might appear to be mundane, boring, pointless, when in reality they have a redemptive quality when in reality they are made to be holy. This is the great St. Therese moment 
when she says, My vocation is to love and to offer every moment as an offering unto God. And so with that, let us be reminded that the Holy Family teaches us what this looks like and that we share in the life of the Holy Family every time we offer all that we do to God. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.